welcome to Hazel and Katniss and Harry and Star, a young adult literature podcast, their film adaptations, and everything in between. I'm Joe. And I'm Brenna. And we are talking about After We Collided, the second book in the After Trilogy today. Why do you hate me? <laughs> what did I ever do to you? <laughs> I just wanted to see if I could pull a fast one on you. <laughs> I was actually hoping that I might just hear you fall out of shock. <laughs> Although it's not like we're talking about a less bonkers text today, to be perfectly honest. This is fair, yes. <laughs> so, folks, we are talking about Archie, Volume 1 and Volume 2 from just a couple of years ago, as well as Riverdale, the CW television show that I don't even know what to do with. <laughs> Although, to be fair, as I said in last week's episode, I am going to give Riverdale a fair shot. When I went back and watched the first two episodes, I was kind of surprised at how it almost seems like a normal TV show. <laughs> yeah, I actually had the exact same reaction. I don't know. I've been so far deep into it for so long that I don't think I could pinpoint when it went off the rails. <laughs> well, it's funny because I thought about the same thing to myself. So I went and checked the AV TV Club reviews oh, they would know. from the last couple of episodes of season three, because of course we are doing this in advance of Riverdale's return to the CW for season four, which mm -hmm. is coming out either tonight or maybe tomorrow. I can't remember what day it airs. But uh, yeah, I went back and checked and they were talking about organ heists and how oh, yeah. Jughead's mom was a criminal mastermind yeah. and how it ended with this cliffhanger where Jughead was maybe insane. dead. Yes! <laughs> I just kind of went... Okay, yeah, that sounds like the Riverdale that I had internalized as, <laughs> no, I cannot do this anymore, and I cannot watch the show anymore. It's so true. And I was thinking, too, like, I mean, we've done the backstory on Archie and the reboot and everything on previous shows, and we'll talk a little bit about it today, but it's almost like, at the comic level, they were like, what if Archie is a real boy with real consequences? And then <laughs> they adapted it to Riverdale, and they were like, okay, but what if not? <laughs> right. <laughs> I think what happened was they went to adapt it and then they got stuck with what if Archie got hot and was DTF <laughs> and then they just immediately lost focus on what they were meant to be doing. It is bonkers. Even in the first two episodes, you can see where the bonkersness is going, but I can also see why I got sucked in in the first place. So, Oh, for sure. Yeah. We will yeah. talk about all of that. But first, I know you have homework and I know you have our favorite kind of homework, which is mm -hmm. listener mail. I do. Yes. We've been teasing it for the last couple of weeks. So I want to make sure that I'm acknowledging the people who have taken time to write in. Because we love it. We really do. And you know, people don't have to do this. No. So when they take the time to write us book recommendations or to gently chastise us, both of which I'm going to read today, yes, I think it's valuable that we acknowledge their time and energy. I agree. Yeah. Okay, so I've got three different emails to read, and technically we did have a fourth one, but I'm going to save it for an episode a couple weeks from now because it ties in very nicely. So Cody, oh, cool. I'm sorry we are not going to address your question about Manic Pixie Dream Girls until a to-be-determined air date that will happen later on in October. Cody, I literally sat down to write you an essay-like response, yeah. and then I was like... No, he didn't ask for that. That's not that's not kind. <laughs> and not because not because it was anything other than just long and boring. <laughs> well, and I'm sure he'd rather have you explain it in your melodious voice instead. Aw, thanks, Joe. Hmm. Okay, so we're gonna start off with Max. 
And Max wrote in to more or less give us perfectly curated titles <laughs> I to know. each of us. I so know. he did give us a whole bunch, but since this is a podcast for more than just you and I, I'm just going to pick one that he recommended to each of us, okay. and the others are for our eyes only. So I'm going to pick the one that he selected for me, which is called Hashtag Murder Trending by Gretchen McNeil. And this is proof of just how well people have come to know us because this recommendation is apparently about teens who have been sent to an Alcatraz-like island (laughs) where their deaths will be live streamed by a government-sanctioned assassin. And the main character forms a clique of friends who have maybe been framed or falsely accused and they get coined the breakfast club and they have to find a way to survive and figure out how they ended up in their predicament. And I don't know that there could be a title that's more my jam. It's <laughs> when you forwarded me that email, I literally, that is the title that made me actually laugh out loud because it mm-hmm. is so on on Joe. It's perfect. It really, really legitimately is. And I'm not going to lie, the other titles that Max sent in are just as appropriate. I just thought that one sounded really amazing. So once yes. again, that is hashtag murder trending by Gretchen McNeil. And then the one that I selected from your picks, Brenna, is called Undead Girl Gang by Lily Anderson. Yes. And this is a witch story. So it's about a girl whose best friend, who was also a witch, uh, has died. And people have suspected that she and two other girls were part of a suicide pact. But it turns out that they were kind of like a secret coven of witches. So she goes to resurrect her one friend, ends up resurrecting all three. And then they have seven days to solve the mystery of the murders before the girls go back into the grave and the killer is still out and about amazing i mean yeah. it just sounds amazing it is already on my library holds list thank you max yes very very well done max you've clearly been paying attention <laughs> to what we like <laughs> okay so email number two is from leo Leo has written in to us several times before to advise us on some really good trans narratives and some mm-hmm. queer narratives, which I also appreciate. Now, Leo did write in with a different kind of text. So in addition to recommending the Carry On book by Rainbow Rowell, which is to me sounded like a queer Harry Potter. It is. It is literally queer Harry Potter. It's fun. So fun. And it's apparently getting a sequel. The sequel is already out. It's called Wayward Son. And there is a third book coming out that she just announced today, the title of which completely escapes me. Okay. I thought it was going to come before the end of the sentence, Joe, and then it didn't. (laughs) (laughs) The marvels of the internet, I'm sure that we can figure it out. I'm going to look it up. Okay. I will go back then to the other recommendation that Leo provided, which is a book called Gabby, A Girl in Pieces by Isabel Quintero. And this one is about a light-skinned Mexican girl who, it just sounds like she's dealing with a bunch of different kinds of real-life issues. So she is a fat girl, so she's having to deal with comments about her weight from people, as well as her own body image issues. She has a father who is addicted to meth. She's got a mother who is pregnant but the baby may not be from her father and she also has a gay best friend who is uh, having difficulty seeking acceptance and she copes with all of this by getting into poetry so i'll admit the sentence a little bit more up your alley than mine but mostly just because of the poetry (laughs) i knew you were gonna say that i think it sounds amazing (laughs) you know how desperate i am for formal innovation 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, and apparently this one is actually written in diary format. So I'm interested to see if the two mesh well like do we get to see her experimenting with the poetry in the diary or is the poetry just part of her you know character arc as Mm -hmm. she grapples with all the various things that are intruding on her life Mm. yeah um i'm gonna bust in and say that the third simon snow book so it's carrie on then wayward son and the third one is anyway the wind blows and it was announced today but no official release date listed and if that sounds familiar to you if you're like racking your brain like why do i know those are song lyrics aren't they well first of all they're all song lyrics but second of all the reason why you know who simon snow is is if you read fangirl by rainbow rowell so in fangirl rainbow rowell writes a protagonist who is obsessed with the simon snow series which is like a loose analog for harry potter and fan girl was so popular that rainbow rail kind of like reverse engineered her own fandom and wrote the simon snow books as a response which is amazing can you imagine having such a popular kind of throwaway aspect of one book that it then turns into a series i know i know Uh, and it really is totally because it's gay harry potter with kissing that's really that's what it is i mean yeah i'm good with it who's not who's not And then one other thing that Leo did mention in his email was, I can't remember if we talked about it on the pod or if it was just in a previous email and we didn't address it, but he did want to caution and say that the art of being normal, which is a trans narrative, is not a recommended text. So he had taken a look at it and apparently it is not only not good, it's actively bad. Oh no. So there are apparently medical inaccuracies, there's transphobic comments, which is strange because the character is trans and makes transphobic comments against other trans characters in the books to the point of uncomfortableness on the part of the reader. So if you were looking for a good trans narrative, Leo does not recommend this particular book. Thanks for the heads up, Leo. I appreciate it. Yeah. I think it's important to acknowledge that there are advances being made in all types of narratives. And I don't believe that this is actually an own narrative, which is maybe uh, part of where the problem lies. Mm-hmm. But part of this is that as we venture forth into this exciting new world, it doesn't always mean that the texts are going to be good or representative. And this is why we still need people to curate and make recommendations. Mm-hmm. I think that's another reason why we really appreciate people writing in and saying, you know what? this is not a good book or people should actively avoid reading this because it's harmful or dangerous. I definitely appreciate that feedback. Yeah. Yeah. So the final email is from Andrew and Andrew gave us a couple of different recommendations as well, including Watch Us Rise by Renee Watson and Ellen Hagen, The Beauty That Remains by Ashley Woodfolk, and I Wish You All the Best by Mason Deaver. And these range in different types of content, but, you know, they've got own voices, they've got some queer elements, they've got non-binary characters. Mm. But the other important issue that I wanted to raise is Andrew gave us some constructive feedback Mm-hmm. He came back and said that he had read If I Was Your Girl, which is a trans narrative, an own narrative that we had talked about in the homework section. But yeah. we both talked about how much we really liked it. Mm-hmm. And I think at the time, we both described it as a bit of a fantasy. Mm-hmm. And I didn't have a chance to go back and actually listen to explicitly 
how we framed that. But mm-hmm. Andrew said, you know, I went into this expecting a fantasy because you had both said that it was so warm and so nice and it had this happy ending. And apparently we neglected to address the fact that there is trauma. There is, I believe, a near sexual assault, if not yeah. an actual sexual assault. You know, there's a public humiliation. So yep. Andrew just asked us to be mindful, even in the homework section, when we are talking about books, that it's good to just give people a heads up or make sure that they understand what they're going into. So I appreciated that. And I feel sorry that we didn't do a better job of making sure that people knew. Like our intention is never to mislead people. Yeah, I think we we owe an apology for that for sure. And I am I am sorry. And I know that I was certainly effusive in my praise of the happy ending quality Mm -hmm. of If I Was Your Girl. And I think that It had also been a while since I had reread it, and sometimes, I was saying this to Joe, we were texting about this earlier, that sometimes when things are not your trauma, they don't sort of stick in the same way. And so the happy ending that the book does have, for me, that was the all-encompassing reminder, months getting on for probably a couple of years after my initial read of the text so all this to say it was never our intention and we are sorry and i think joe and i are both committed to being more mindful about content warnings going forward Mm -hmm. particularly in the homework particularly when we're not talking about a text in depth so andrew we really appreciate that feedback and we're going to um, do our best to do better moving forward yeah exactly so that is a wrap on the listener emails brenna do you have anything in homework that you want to share? I do. Uh, I'm actually going to mention a title that Max recommended to us. Oh, good. Okay. (laughs) I hope I didn't steal your thunder. You did not. I was waiting. I was going to jump in if you did. So I have two little bits of homework today. Um, The first is that in that email that Max sent us, he recommended us a book called Check, Please, (laughs) which is... I love YA titles. (laughs) (laughs) Just so fun and playful. So he recommended book one of Check, Please, which is, it's a comic about hockey. Oh, yes. Okay. Yeah, it's by Ngozi Ukazu, and it's amazing. Is it? Okay. Yeah. Okay, so so it's like told in the style of like a series of video blogs from a guy who has just moved, like he's just started at university and he's on the varsity, he's on the varsity hockey team. He's gay. He's openly gay. It's not an issue for his teammates. He's very comfortable in his non, I guess, non-traditional approach to masculinity he bakes for the whole team um he like brings pies and stuff to practices and it's nice. just i'm not misstepping i don't think i'm missing anything it really is a real fantasy story about non-traditional re- representations of masculinity and sport as like a place where all bodies are accepted and it's just really lovely it sounds refreshing. It's refreshing. It's funny. It's a super fast read. And the art is flipping gorgeous. Mm. And the pages are all real glossy. It's like just a real like sensory pleasure to consume this book. And I should actually shout out a friend of mine, Yash, who uh, writes for Book Riot and also has a young adult podcast called Put a Blurb on It, I believe is her podcast name. She recommended this comic to me years and years and years ago, and I just never moved on it. And then when Max recommended it too, I was like, well, that name's really familiar. So anyway, I can heartily add my recommendation to that. It's really good fun. Nice. And uh, my other piece of homework is just really quick and kind of random. So... 
on Saturday nights, uh, well, Saturdays during the day, we go to the library with my toddler and we let him pick our movie for movie night. And we've been really trying to steer him away from like compendiums of hideous animated programs. (laughs) He picked out a video that was just episodes of this awful Mickey Mouse nonsense garbage show that I thought I was going to die having to sit through. So we've been trying to push him towards narrative film because he's starting to have enough attention span to do that uh, last week we got to the brave little toaster and he did really well because i totally forgot how terrifying that movie is p.s right yeah but a couple of weeks ago well, we've been on a bit of a recording hiatus and a couple of weeks ago he picked out a film called hoot i don't think i know it, but i'm assuming it has something to do with an owl it does it's a really cute it's definitely closer to middle grade than ya but i bring it up because it's actually a book adaptation Uh, it's an adaptation of a carl hyacin novel it's about these kids in florida who find out that some developers are going to develop a piece of land where there are burrowing owls living and it's their sort of like fight to save these owls it's made in the 90s, I think, but it very much has a feel of one of those like 80s kid caper movies. Oh, I love it. Right? Where you're like, why are these kids in charge of saving the world? Well, because the adults are all capitalist right. monsters. But I bring it up on the context of this show to tell Joe that mm-hmm. it stars a very young Brie Larson. <gasps> really? Yeah. <laughs> Oh, fun. (laughs) And she's quite adorable. And there are many very cute owls. And some parts of the plot are incoherent in just that way of kids caper movies. Right. But if you have middle grade people in your life and you need a movie that has absolutely no violence in it whatsoever, highly recommend Hoot. (laughs) Cute. Okay. It's cute. Give a hoot. See hoot. No? (laughs) No? (laughs) You know, I was almost on board with you. And then... (laughs) Welcome back to Dad Puns, the podcast. <laughs> uh, mom puns. They can be mom puns. They can be mom puns. Mom, <laughs> mom pumps. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> so let's let's talk about Archie, Brenna. Yes. So if people have been with us for a while, you have likely heard us name drop Archie a couple of times. Mm-hmm. So if you want to, you can go back and listen to our episode on Chilling Adventures of Sabrina. Or more recently, the start of book two, we talked about Archie again for Josie and the Pussycats. Mm-hmm. But today, it's a whole episode just on what are like one of the offensive titles that they use in Riverdale, like the Ginger Wonder? <laughs> Yeah. Yeah, let's talk about the ginger wonder. (laughs) (laughs) We say affectionately and with love. Yes. So we've talked before about the fact that in about 2014, Archie Comics launched a massive reboot of all of its series. So the announcement came in 2014. I think the first issue of Archie was 2015. And we've talked before about the importance of this as a reboot in that what happened was Archie went from being completely episodic where everything resets at the beginning of each new issue to Mm -hmm. a much more mature, sophisticated storytelling experience where characters make choices and those choices have consequences. Yes. And they have to actually live with the consequences for longer than a single issue. Kind of like real life. Kind of like real life. And that was what it allowed the series to do. So it allowed the series to suddenly tell more adult stories. And I don't mean that in terms of like sex and violence. Although not in the Riverdale, Riverdale sense. <laughs> not well, Riverdale takes that to an extreme. But just the idea that, yeah, these are kids who are coming of age with all the consequences that come along with that, which was not something that had really been part of the Archie universe before. With the reboot, we also see a diversification of cast and characters we see a sort of stronger commitment to 
talking about issues. Mm-hmm. And we see some really effective storytelling in some places and some stuff that doesn't work as well. And we've talked about that with regard to some of the, um, well, just the fact that we really loved Sabrina and we really thought Josie and the Pussycats was a bit flat. Yeah. I mean, it's hard to uh, summarize the plot. And I should say, actually, Joe, I ended up reading like the first five trades. For- oh, did you? Okay. <laughs> I did. Yeah. I had every intention of reading... I think I got all six out of the library, but I only made it through the first two. But it, it did help to synthesize in my mind some of the strengths and weaknesses that, ironically enough, I feel are representative of the entirety of the conversations we've already had. Yeah. So it was interesting to revisit these after a couple of years and be like, yeah, some of the things that I saw in Chilling Adventures of Sabrina and Josie are both also present in this work. That's interesting. I'm going to be interested to hear more about that from you. I'm going to give a really sort of snappy plot synopsis today because, well, here's the thing. The adaptation isn't really an adaptation, is it? No. And so I don't know if we need to get bogged down in the plot details beyond what we're actually interested in talking Mm -hmm. about so basically at the opening of the first volume we find out that Archie and Betty Cooper have just broken up yes and it is a big deal it is a big deal for all of town (laughs) and the idea is that they've broken up over something called the lipstick incident but nobody's talking Betty doesn't want people to be mad at Archie Archie clearly feels some sense of guilt or sadness but they're not speaking to each other at all so that come, happens, which is very important. The other thing that happens that's very important is that Veronica Lodge moves to town. Mm-hmm. And so in the first volume, we have this sort of setting up and upending simultaneously of the community of Riverdale. But we meet all the major characters. You know, we find out that Archie really wants to pursue his music, but he's nervous to do it. We find out that Betty's really good at working on cars. Um, We find out that Veronica is rich and always gets her way, but maybe is a kinder person than you think on the surface. Mm -hmm. We get the setup of the animosity between Archie and Veronica's dad. Well-earned because Archie destroys his home in the first moment that he meets him. Yep. Because Archie is still clumsy, Veronica is still rich and entitled, Betty is still a do-gooder that everyone thinks is adorable, but she's, you know, masking it under her kind of... uh... Well, she has a ponytail, Joe. (laughs) You can't be beautiful if you put your hair in a ponytail. Yeah, I mean, the the (laughs) comic does a good job of reiterating a lot of the familiar components that Mm -hmm. even casual readers of Archie would be familiar with. Mm -hmm. And yet it does a pretty good job of updating a lot of those and addressing some of those as stereotypes by giving all of the characters just a bit more nuance. Yes. Yeah, I agree with all of that. I don't think we even said off the top that the author of this reboot is Mark Wade and the artist, at least for the first volume, maybe the first two volumes, is Fiona Staples. Yeah, I think she was only supposed to be on for the first one, but she came back for the second. Her art is pretty freaking iconic. They do a good job of hitting that balance between uh, capturing something of the sort of iconicness of these characters while allowing them to modernize in, in a way that feels believable. Yes. I definitely agree with the former statement and a little bit less so on the latter. Part of my frustration was the reticence to really embrace these people as modern and giving them enough of a real life feel. One of my big issues 
and this becomes more apparent the further on the comics go is how klutzy and unrealistic <laughs> Archie is. And I know that's a holdover from the 50s because I remember having mad giggles when I was a child and reading the... Oh, yeah, the pratfalls are like the yeah, whole thing. Yeah, it's a lot of physical kind of slapstick Looney Tunes style comedy, but it doesn't gel quite as well when you're trying to make the argument that Archie could live in the real world and not die in a series of freak accidents. <laughs> okay, fair point. And I know that there's comedy to be played off of that, you know, like I appreciate the fact when he tries to get the job working construction for Mr. Lodge and basically everyone rallies to say we need to make sure that Archie does not kill himself, <laughs> but it becomes just increasingly more ridiculous that he has all of these insane close calls like near brushes with death on point with like a final destination slasher film (laughs) (laughs) fair that's fair yeah it's probably not worth really going into too much more plot detail because at the end of the day it's about you know archie developing a relationship with veronica and betty feeling like veronica is taking advantage of him and the moments where Wade just allows these characters to have real relationships so Mm. the part that works best for me you know the parts where Mr. Lodge tries to get a job for Archie's dad in a foreign country in (laughs) the span of what 12 hours yeah that's the kind of stuff where I just thought you know what this is this undercuts it yeah it's a little too Archie for what they're trying to achieve I think my favorite thing that happens in the reboot in terms of like, I don't know, realism or honesty or truth is um, the friendship that emerges between Jughead and Betty. Yes. It's one of my great disappointments about the show, and we can talk about that in a a bit. Mm -hmm. There has always been something great about the triangulation of friendship, and the focus is always on Archie plus Betty versus Veronica. Yes. But I'm much more interested in the way that a complete devotion to this buffoon Mm -hmm. (laughs) is what bonds Betty and Jughead together, right? Like, they are both much smarter than Archie. They are both much more accomplished than Archie. They are both much more complex and interesting people than Archie. But they're both totally and utterly devoted to Archie, right? And I, I love the way that friendship emerges in this run of the storytelling. Yeah, I also appreciate the fact that Wade his run on the comics is very content to give Jughead his own personality with really without really giving too much time and energy to his independent storylines. Yeah. And I think we've talked about it before, but if people do have an interest in Jughead as a character, I would actually argue that his own spin-off by Chip Zdarsky is the strongest of all of the mainstream Archie comics. Strongly agree. I particularly, to take nothing away from Chip Zdarsky, who does good work, but I also love about midway through the second volume, Ryan North takes over as the author. Listeners will know how much I love Ryan North because he writes Unbeatable Squirrel Girl. Right. They're both excellent. Like it's it's a solid run. There's I think three trade papers out. It's worth reading. And one of the most important and groundbreaking components of that series is mm-hmm. that Jughead is asexual and yeah. talks about it real openly and real yes. frankly and as part of what makes him who he is and how he experiences the world. It's so refreshing. It's so refreshing. It's beautifully done. And that run has gotten a lot of praise for their handling of that. Yes. And of course, it's completely straight washed out of Riverdale. Uh, yeah. 
I feel like what we should do is spend like five more minutes talking about the comic and then just dedicate yes, the rest sorry. of the time to Riverdale. If I didn't only mean... because no, it's because I feel like we're both actually more interested in talking about Riverdale yeah. as a text. The yeah. comics are interesting. They're kind of exactly what you expect them yes, to they be. Are. Mm-hmm. I really need to give a shout out to Fiona because the art is to me actually the strongest part about this particular comic. It's phenomenal. It really brings a freshness to the characters that you thought you knew, but they're still eminently recognizable. But there's mm-hmm. something about the way that she draws. I know the coloring isn't her. And maybe part of the reason that I like it so much is because it does remind me of Saga, which is arguably my favorite comic on the market. And the mm-hmm. fact that they're taking a hiatus is really just bumming me out a lot <laughs> right now. Uh, that's not why I, so I can't recommend it to people, but Sidebar best comic out there go read saga (laughs) it's amazing it's profane and sexual and not appropriate for teenage listeners but uh or maybe it is you know stretch your boundaries go and experience spider sex and all of its (laughs) pleasures the art in archie is really good and i like it a lot after her, I've just looked it up, and in the issues that follow, Annie Wu and Veronica Fish are the major names on the, the following issues. There's really something incredible about the way everything you know about Archie, Betty, Jughead, and Veronica is evoked on the page without it feeling even the slightest bit out of time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It's shocking to me how contemporary it feels, and yet it also has that air of nostalgia to it. Like, there's a weird timelessness to the way that the comic looks. Yeah, it's uh, it's really good. And I, I agree with you that there's not a lot to talk about in terms of the story or, or the plot here. It really is a very straightforward rethinking of these characters. But what I did realize in rereading it, I mean, I reread the first five volumes. There's only six. So I've made my way through most of the series. It really is worth your time. You know, like um, it's a bit, it gets off the rails a little bit. Um, and the things that Joe has said are just too much like quote-unquote Archie are definitely occasionally grating but Mm -hmm. more than for the character of Archie but for the characters of Jughead and Betty are particularly well done throughout the series Um, but even Veronica gets a fair amount of depth and complexity yes it's a really worthwhile series to pick up. Oh, and Dilton, actually. I really like Dilton's storyline through the whole series. Uh, Dilton has a crush on Betty, and it's sort of unrequited, but sort of not. And he's kind of trapped in this space of being not Archie that's really quite lovely. Right. Lovely in its evocation in the series. Yeah, it's worth picking up. I got nothing bad to say about it, honestly. Yeah, and I think I'm a little more lukewarm on it, but I, I mean, I've read four of the six. I sort of love each success of one a little bit less but I think it's also because I probably read them very close together but I will say that if you pick up the first volume it's a very good synthesis of what you will get oh totally it's exactly what it says on the tin as my nan would say (laughs) oh my gosh that's cute (laughs) but yeah so uh if people are interested and haven't checked it out I mean these are relatively fast reads although they are a little bit lengthier than your traditional volume of graphic novel so yeah have at her if you like volume one you'll probably like the rest of them agreed yeah all right run the trailer dano (laughs) here we go oh my god
Every corpse has a tale to tell, and this one has the touch of evil. Archie, a kid is dead. I saw you guys. How you feel about me? Is it real? I'm asking you right now if you love me. Who are you lying to? I'm breakfast at Tiffany's, but this place is strictly in cold blood. This should be fun. Did you and Donnie Darko kill him together? Nothing this bad was ever supposed to happen here. Maybe there's another side to the story. There's a possibility Jason's murderer will soon be in this room. This whole car is a crime scene. No fingerprints. You're a little more dangerous than you look. Okay, so Riverdale is a TV show that airs on the CW Network, and it began in 2017. And it's kind of quietly become the defining show on the network. Mm -hmm. To the point that I actually saw an article today talking about how the network is changing the way that it makes TV shows to be more in the Riverdale vein, which Mm -hmm. gently terrified me. (laughs) i mean part of that i think might be a visual aesthetic and the way that they cast actors which has always been very much a a cw thing and before the wb as well which we talked about a little bit in gossip girl and this kind of feels like gossip girl on steroids which is odd because gossip girl itself was other shows on steroids steroids yeah yeah so we've got our hot young very attractive cast KJ Appa is Archie, Lily Reinhardt is Betty, Camilla Mendez is Veronica, Cole Sprouse, aka Ross's child from Friends, is what? Jughead. Yeah, what? Did, did you know that? No. Yeah, so Cole has a twin brother, and they apparently were the twins alternated as Ross's son on Friends. All right. Yeah, that's your hey, you probably feel old now. No, yeah. For the day. Casey Cott is Kevin. Madeline Petch is Cheryl Blossom, who, maybe you know this. I know that Cheryl is in the Wade comics, but is she a relatively recent character along with Kevin? No, the Blossoms have been, I'm pretty sure they've always been in Riverdale. They've always been sort of the rival wealthy people to um, Veronica. Right. Okay. Oh, I'm wrong. They've only been in the comics since the 80s, but they've been in the comics for a long time. Okay, that's fair. Yeah, I was trying to think back to my past and I couldn't remember Cheryl in the comics. So I wasn't sure if I had just neglected her or if it was I had only read a certain run. But And then arguably one of the other fascinating things that the show has done is it's cast very recognizable adults who mm. were famous for other TV shows. So we've got Matt Chinamic from Twin Peaks playing Betty's mom. We've got Skeet Ulrich from Scream playing Jughead's dad. We've got Mark Consuelos playing Veronica's dad. And of course, we've got Luke Perry and Molly Ringwald as Archie's parents. And how many of those are not just iconic TV actors, but iconic teen TV actors? Mm-hmm. There's a real sort of sense of pastiche of all the teen programming that's gone before that I can never get over as I watch this, but sorry, go on. No, I mean, that's more or less, I mean, I didn't do a full cast rundown because there's a lot of people on this show, Mm -hmm. but I do think that that's arguably one of the show's greatest strengths and it's most 
fascinating creative decisions. I know we've talked about the fact that Riverdale has been compared a lot to a teen Twin Peaks. Mm -hmm. We've talked a lot about how all of the episode titles are references to teen films and other really recognizable properties. Mm -hmm. We've talked about this idea of pastiche and nostalgia and timelessness, principally when we were talking about The Chilling Adventures of Sabrina Mm -hmm. months and months and months ago. But I think that is one of the most striking aspects of the show. And I know for me, when it first started back in 2017, it was the thing that I naturally gravitated to the most strongly, was this idea that they had really created a kind of mystique that also was very playful in acknowledging these are not just characters that people recognize from Archie's 75-year publishing history, but also were casting people, not the children, the adults were basically also drawing on your nostalgic values from the 80s and the 90s to populate the more mature cast which as we talked about is like a form of stunt casting that YA tends to do yes the show is so committed to pastiche in so many different ways like one of the things that I think we talked about with Sabrina too and I'm hesitant to like just rehash all that ground but it's also relevant again right Mm -hmm. is the way that the show plays with Timelessness is the wrong word. Yeah. Intense awareness of time and the slippages therein. So Mm -hmm. there are scenes in Archie where you get a street shot and all of a sudden, literally all the cars are from the 50s. Yes. With no comment. Or the scenes that take place, we didn't watch them for episode one and two, but there are scenes later in this season that take place in a hospital and everyone in the hospital dresses like they're a 1940s nurse, like complete with the little white hat and everything. Mm -hmm. Again, with no comment and no context. No. But characters also have cell phones. But they also have cell phones. Yeah, it's like, it's really committed to this idea that timelessness can be represented by like time play or time slippage. And I'm not sure that it always works. It is certainly very evocative. Like it's definitely a style. You see it Mm -hmm. and you know you're watching Riverdale in like two seconds. Although we're seeing more and more shows echo Mm -hmm. it. So maybe maybe it won't feel so iconically Riverdale eventually. Well, I think at this point, it's still a trendsetter. Like part of the reason that it's worth rehashing, despite the fact that we did have some fairly extended conversation during our Chilling Adventures of Sabrina episode is because Riverdale set the mold, right? You know, love it or hate it, it has defined itself as an iconic text of contemporary YA because it has kind of dared to tread this groundbreaking new route while simultaneously basically just doing everything that every YA text before it has ever done. Yes, yes, exactly. Like it's somehow all-encompassing but breaking new ground doing it. And I don't understand. My brain just kind of exploded Uh, a little bit. I mentioned at the end of the last issue that, uh, or last issue, the last episode. (laughs) Oh, wait, are we a graphic novel? Are we a comic now? (laughs) I wish. Who draws us? I want to know. I just got the edits back from an article that I have coming out that I co-wrote with my colleague from my old institution, Peter Wilkins. And we wrote this piece about the psychogeography of Riverdale. I'm sorry. What is that? Psychogeography. (laughs) It's a a theoretical thinking through of the way geographies are represented. Okay. And so what we're writing about, the article is called, uh, How Do You Build a Problem Like Riverdale? I know, I'm very cute with my titles. (laughs) But the premise of the article is, okay, Riverdale is a town that has never existed. Right. And we talked about this in our chilling episode 
conversation around the Riverdale that was being sold to us prior to the reboot was all about nostalgia, right? It was look at this perfect moment in American time, except that, you know, that completely white town, right? completely divorced from any real engagement with the major social movements of the 50s and 60s and 70s. Like that place never existed. No. And this is what the U.S. loves to do, by the way. It's not as though this is unique to Riverdale, but Riverdale is doing a really good job of interrogating it while also falling prey to it. Well, and the fact that Archie as a comic basically traded in that nostalgia for like 40, 50, 60, Mm. I'm doing the math, 70 years. I think 70 years, yeah. Yeah. And so what Peter and I write about in that article is, so you're trying to bring to the screen this place that is simultaneously every town USA and a Mm -hmm. place that has literally never existed. And what deep and delicious irony that in order to construct that place, you don't film it in America. You film it in Canada. (laughs) You film it in the lower mainland of British Columbia. And in order to create a town that demonstrates the kind of class differential and psychogeographic space that Riverdale occupies, you end up cannibalizing from like a dozen small towns and areas of the city of Vancouver. Right. So like Betty and Archie are supposed to be next door neighbors, but... Their houses are nowhere near each other. (laughs) Betty's house is in New Westminster, which is an old, much older suburb was originally the capital of British Columbia and Archie's house is in East Van which is like a way trendier part of town so you start to think about like pastiche as it applies to the geography of the space and this idea that like Riverdale as the community represented in Archie never existed but Riverdale as the community represented on the screen also has never existed right Right. and the sort of the irony and the slippage that you can play with around all of that And so I like thinking through the space and the way Riverdale is represented because it is so profoundly bonkers as as the series continues, right? Yeah. So it's a small town and that's really important, right? To everything about these kids and how they're growing up and how they define themselves. But it's a small town with a very clearly defined north and south side, Mm -hmm. big enough to support two entire giant high schools it also is home to a hospital an asylum when you actually sit down to like parse out what exists in this apparently small town it's a small city it's a small (laughs) city it would have to be (laughs) yeah it would absolutely have to be and so i'm sort of fascinated by the fact that the writers of riverdale feel absolutely no constraints with (laughs) with regard to their own geography and space you know yeah It's a complicated notion because as you were describing all of the ridiculous things that exist in this apparently small town, I couldn't help but think of my own experiences with Buffy, which is also similar where it starts off as a small town and then in season four, suddenly there's a university that's (laughs) conveniently located for all the characters to go to. But no one's mentioned it before that? No. no. (laughs) So this is a well-worn trope, but I do wonder... If only because of the, hmm, how shall I put this, the way that Riverdale has morphed from a somewhat sensational teen drama into arguably an absolutely ridiculous form of entertainment. Yeah. 
Like it almost doesn't have any realistic components anymore. No, it has like, none. You know, there's been how many serial killers? There's been how many underground boxing? They don't even do normal drugs. <laughs> oh, are we talking about Jingle Jangle? We're talking about Jingle Jangle that comes in a pixie <laughs> stick. Which, I mean, ties into all the stuff around, like, the Archies and Sugar Sugar and the way that gets represented in the mm-hmm. series. And again, it's like nostalgia, but nostalgia that is actually going to kill you, right? When it's the weirdest form of tongue-in-cheek, I mean, we've had this discussion about Chilling Adventures of Sabrina, but I feel like even that can make the argument that it's more grounded because it's set in a world of witchcraft where... Well, I was going to say, because it's a genre piece. Yeah. Yeah. And the things that didn't work for us in that was actually more of the visual aesthetic, like Vaseline look on the lens. Clean your camera. Right. (laughs) Whereas here, what we have is the cleaned camera and the visual aesthetic that evokes a noir vibe. So in these first couple of episodes, they're very obviously pulling from 1950s. Yes small town that's got corruption underneath which is where the twin peaks references come in by the way lazy criticism because this this tv show is nothing like twin peaks (laughs) i'm sorry it's far too surface level to be twin peaks like david lynch is operating on about 15 different levels this is operating on maybe one or two (laughs) just gonna put it out there not looking for hatred but yeah no but in these early episodes what we very clearly have is a murder mystery right yep and it's strategic, right? This is how you get your pilot picked up to series. And then your second episode doubles down on it by saying, hey, now we need to start laying out some red herrings. We yep. need uh, some mysteries. We need some loose threads. And I remember that was part of what I really enjoyed about that first season was this idea of who killed Jason. Yep. A.K.A. the most poorly cast actor <laughs> on a network television show. And dear Lord, was it so difficult to find a genuine redhead for any of these characters. Oh my God. Uh, the entire <laughs> first season. It's interesting. It didn't bother me so much this time. But the first time I watched this, I spent the entire first season screaming at the TV. Somebody die Archie's eyebrows for the love of God. Yeah. He's got these heavy black eyebrows. He looks ridiculous. And I feel bad because AJ Kappa is, he's gotten a bit of a thankless role because Archie is your typical protagonist where he's kind of the least interesting person on screen, despite the fact that he gets all of the good storylines. Literally every time they want him to be more interesting, they make him take his top off. Which, I'm not going to lie, kind of works for me (laughs) at various times. No, I hadn't. When I said I was doing a rewatch and I put it on Twitter, I, of course, had to include the gif of him running down the street topless from the second (laughs) episode and just the flood of comments of people, you know, more or less melting, talking about (laughs) how attractive he is. And all I could think of was this poor guy. He's a New Zealand import who comes to the States for this once in a lifetime opportunity. And all people can talk about is the fakeness of his red hair and the definition of his pectoral muscles. (laughs) Somebody tried to make the argument to me once that his black eyebrows are a nod to the fact that he has black eyebrows on in the comic, like in the old school comic, his Uh, eyebrows were black, mm, Uh, which is true. Uh, But he also had like a crosshatch drawn in the side of his head in the comics. And I don't see them trying to re-articulate that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, he's the original hashtag, is he not? (laughs) Yes, it's true. His eyebrows (laughs) drive me completely mental. Anyway. Yeah. So this first season is really predicated on this mystery of who killed Jason. 
and if I remember correctly, it was someone in Cheryl's family, maybe her dad? Yeah, Is that her right? dad. Yeah. yeah. Spoilers for first season from 2017 and 2018. <laughs> but uh, I remember thinking, okay, so now they put that to bed and they've fallen into the trap of TV shows that are inherently based around a central mystery. And I wondered, okay, what is the show going to do next? Is it just going to continue on by saying, okay, now that we've hooked our audience, you know, it was a really buzzy TV show. It, it was so buzzy. Yeah, like everybody was watching it. So part of me thought, okay, now they can just ease off on that and just focus on the characters and the relationships. You know, there was already some symptoms of it going off the rails. I remember Archie furiously punching ice and nearly breaking his hand and it seemed melodramatic but still okay and then the second season (laughs) happened and all of a sudden hot miss grundy got murdered and i thought oh okay now we've not just got a murder we've got an active serial killer And oh, Kevin is out cruising in the woods for anonymous gay sex, and he's maybe also going to be murdered. Yep. And oh, there is a designer drug called Jingle Jingle. Jingle. And that was where I had to step off the Riverdale train. Yeah. So something happens between the end of season one and season two where everything had to be escalated. And I don't entirely understand why, but it almost seems like season three they leaned in even further into that to the point that it's now just completely ridiculous yes they have and it is completely ridiculous and it's a show that i have articulated on this podcast before i literally don't know why i'm still watching it (laughs) i refer to it when when my husband finds me watching it i refer to it as that very bad show (laughs) i recognize that it's not good it's an immensely frustrating viewing experience and yet they are very good at cliffhangers i will give them that right Yeah, so I've been covering American Horror Story with a friend of mine on Twitter. So each week we do a plot recap and we talk about the things that are working for us on the show and what aren't. And that's a Ryan Murphy show. So he's the guy who did Glee and Nip This feels so much like a Ryan Murphy show. Feels like a Ryan Murphy show. Yeah, that's, by the way, not a compliment. No. (laughs) They have a relationship. They actually... So Roberto, is it... Aguirre Sacasa? Yep. Okay. So he is actually a bit of a protege of Ryan Murphy. They worked together on a couple of films, uh, notably The Town the Dreaded Sundown, which is a remake of a slasher film. So they did that film together, and it was one of the big hits that Roberto Aguirre Sacasa had when he was kind of breaking into television and movies. So he worked under Ryan Murphy for a couple of different projects. He's directed episodes of American Horror Story. Mm. But it's kind of fascinating. I'm not going to say that Ryan Murphy ruined him. (laughs) But he maybe picked up some bad habits with regard to the way that he tells stories. And to me, the number one issue that I have with Riverdale as a text is the fact that they are constantly, and by they I mean like the writers and the creative team, they're constantly less interested in the day-to-day life of yes. these characters than they are about saying what is a ridiculous or entertaining thing that we can do. Let's throw murders. Let's throw designer <laughs> drugs. Let's throw cat fights. Like I think they mistakenly believe that the appeal of the show is that craziness you know, the cliffhangers, the talking points that are really going to be water cooler moments. But we don't live in a time of water cooler moments anymore. 
No. And it's almost like, I mean, it very much is a belief that more is more. Yes. But this lack of ability to trust the audience to stick with you through the quiet parts, which mm-hmm. is, I mean... Uh, it's a profound condemnation of your own cast and writers if you don't think that your audience will stick with you through the quiet parts because life gets to have quiet parts. I mean, part of what's so frustrating and exhausting about the show is that it's it is just constantly one big crazy twist after another. Yeah, and it doesn't seem to care what happened in the last episode compared to what's happening now, compared to the last scene. No. There's no through line. Like, so you can't even say, oh, well, things are building to a crescendo where, you know, Jughead has maybe been killed and Archie and Betty and Veronica are to blame and they're burning their clothes in a bonfire. You know, it's not working up to that so much as this is now just a thing that's happening. You're going to have to stick around and find out how we got to this insane position, which is, I know it's an effective cliffhangering technique, but it's kind of lazy storytelling. It is, yeah. And you know what? It's so melodramatic. I learned something crazy that I have to read you. So the bonkersness is like so profoundly baked in to the DNA of even the concept of this show. Can I read you something nuts? Absolutely. Okay, so the genesis of the Riverdale TV series was... Warner Brothers was going to make an Archie feature film in 2013, which is interesting because that Mm. actually predates the reboot of the comics. Yeah, by several years. Mm -hmm. So they received a pitch from writer Roberto Aguirre-Sacasa, and we've talked before about the fact that Roberto Aguirre-Sacasa actually got a cease and desist order for a queer musical that he was running about the Archie characters, Mm -hmm. and his response to it was just to change all the characters' names and keep everything else about it exactly the same. So... In 2013, they received a pitch from writer Roberto Aguirre-Sacasa and director Jason Moore that would have placed Archie's gang into a teen comedy feature in the John Hughes tradition. The duo brought the project to Warner Brothers, where a VP recommended a more high-concept direction involving time travel or interdimensional portals, suggesting Louis C.K. to portray the older Archie. What? (laughs) No. Dan Lin and Roy Lee became producers on the project, which eventually stalled as priorities shifted at the studio towards larger tentpole films films and was reimagined as a television series and also as people stop doing jingle jangle in their, <laughs> own, in their own lives doesn't oh. that sound insane archie but make it time travel and add louis ck <laughs> i mean admittedly this is before louis ck had been officially canceled it's but true. yeah that is nobody's idea of a good concept no yeah that very much seems like hey how can we try to make Archie more relevant? Yeah. And to a certain extent, I have to give Riverdale some credit for revitalizing interest in Mm -hmm. Archie and for, you know, as we talked about, like really barreling forth and setting a kind of new path for the way that YA properties can look as a serialized television show. To the extent that we now have nearly an entire network of shows that kind of look like Riverdale. Gosh, and even ones not on the network, you know, like when I watch 13 Reasons Why, I can see the thumbprint of Riverdale all over the visual look of that show, for example. Yeah, I mean, we've talked about how success breeds imitation so you know when we were talking about the hunger games as a result of that success we got the maze runner Mm -hmm. you know as a result of twilight we got all of those supernatural romances with love triangles and so on Mm -hmm. in a way riverdale has done for more conventional ya dramas like it's had that kind of impact or footprint Mm -hmm. arguably 
after that first season, though, this is a show that I don't think has a good handle on its own long game. Oh, it has no idea where it's going. I'm sure it has no idea where it's going. But I guess just to bring it back so that it doesn't sound like we're belaboring the point, um, you know, the plotting is not the show's strength. I will say that it's very frustrating, though, having seen the caliber of its young cast. Mm -hmm. And the people I'm specifically referring to is basically the two female leads. Mm -hmm. Because as much as you praise Jughead in the comic, and particularly his spinoff, I think Cole Sprouse is abysmal in this role. I mean, I loathe the choice that they made to make him a standard straight teenage boy when they had such interesting source material to work from. Oh, yeah. Well, an asexual hot teenage boy is never going to fly on a network television show. Disappointing, considering the year that we're in, but you're not going to cast that actor and then not have him make kissy faces with someone. I know. It's, yeah. It's a missed opportunity, if only for representation. Like, I... Well, and for interesting storytelling, right? Because that's just not, those are just not stories that we typically see in this kind of context, if at all. No. Well, I think the creative decisions around Jughead are very representative of the show's failings. Mm -hmm. Like, I had forgotten how much I hated his purple prose voiceover narration, (laughs) the fact that he's writing a book, the fact that he has had a falling out with Archie at the beginning of the series that is never addressed and no one could care about. Also, do you know what's weird? I just realized in that cliffhanger where it seems like he's dead, Mm -hmm. he's also narrating that scene. (laughs) Crap, I just realized that. Well, that's gonna... Well, bear in mind, we could be in a Desperate Housewives situation where you're (sighs) narrating your own death from beyond the grave. Right, we could. Maybe it's another homage. (laughs) But this is another thing that they drop, right? So at the beginning of the series, he's supposedly writing this novel about his summer. But eventually his writing becomes about the crime reporting that he's doing. And maybe he's writing like a true crime book. And then eventually they just drop any reason for him to be writing all the time anyway. Mm -hmm. And he's just a a very generic voiceover narration. I think because initially they're aiming for that film noir vibe. Oh, that's totally what they're doing. But then they realize, oh, you know what? He's got good chemistry with Lily Reinhardt. Mm-hmm. So let's set up a precedent where we can have them working together on the school newspaper. Because mm-hmm. they're dating in real life, huh? Or work? Right. Yeah. Blah. <laughs> I mean, good for them. Attractive couple. Yay. Go forth and <laughs> populate or something. But I don't know. I feel like the only truly interesting thing that the show really got right for me was... They acknowledge that it's less interesting to have two female characters fight over a man when they could actually just have them be friends and have each other's backs. Yes. And I think they also recognize that Lily Reinhardt is a really talented actress and they can give her some of the more emotionally compelling character arcs. So her capacity for self-harm, her violent outbursts, and the way that she has concerns about mental illness running in her family, to me, were some of the brighter parts. Like, you know, I love Madgenamic's hysterics as Betty's mom. I think she's perfectly cast for such a crazy role. Mm-hmm. And I apologize for saying crazy with regard to a woman who acts a little bit off kilter because mm-hmm. I know it's a, a stigmatized term that mm-hmm. often gets used very flippantly, but I feel like it's very deliberately done by the show. Mm-hmm. I agree. I'm sorry. I'm rolling my eyes at like every statement that's coming out of my mouth because the show <laughs> is just does that to me. 
I also <laughs> think along the lines of what you're talking about with female friendship, I mean, Cheryl's character doesn't actually get interesting to me in any way until she embarks on a relationship with Josie as the series progresses. And right. she becomes empathetic and interesting. Oh my God, I totally forgot that they all end up in a cult by the end of season three. Oh, yeah, yeah. At that point, I was firmly tuned out, so nothing could have surprised me more. But I think, actually, Cheryl's a really interesting character as well, but the first season is really just content to say, oh, is she having an incestual relationship with her brother, as though that somehow makes her interesting? I think what's ultimately really frustrating about the show is that it narratively always takes the easy way out. Yes. And by that, I mean, not necessarily that the plotting is straightforward, because obviously it's not, but that like, if it has the choice between developing a character in a meaningful way or taking an easy shock Mm -hmm. out of that character development, it always takes the easy shock. So yeah, we have the allusions to incest. We have the gay baiting around Moose. We have all of these moments throughout the series where we're just tempted with a tiny bit of maybe interesting character complexity or depth and it gets ripped away from us so that we can focus again on something titillating and it's exhausting and i think part of it was i was looking at it through my own weird lens where i said oh well the show really went off the rails at a later point and then going back and watching the first two episodes i can see the things that i was attracted to in the very mm-hmm. beginning but at the same time i had completely forgotten that there's this huge first couple of episode arc where archie is sleeping with his teacher uh-huh. which is the most tired Uh really frankly disgusting and inappropriate storyline that we have seen time and time again in YA text they think that there's something titillating about a gross abuse of power which is all it is it's honestly it feels like an excuse to be like hey here's Archie making out topless with an older woman in a steamed up jalopy Mm -hmm. and guess what like Cheryl says in episode two you need to check what you're doing because what you're doing is like 1994 yeah i remember when i was watching the very first episode i was describing to my husband who was earnestly not paying any attention to the show what was happening and he's like so he's pacey wooder yeah <laughs> like, yeah mm-hmm. and we saw it in gossip girl yep. and yeah it's old and it's played out and it's the wrong kind of nostalgic vibe that the show should be going for but you're right it's the kind of easy titillation that the Mm -hmm. show repeatedly leans into which undermines its own potency it makes the show cheap and it lessens it yep 100 which is frustrating because you know we now see shows like 13 reasons why taking those lessons and running with them to the point of real life trauma yeah yeah uh okay I think we've belabored these points, my friend. I was going to say, yes. I'm sure people (laughs) who actually appreciate this show for everything that it is doing. And I will say, you know, Cheryl gives good quip. So if you're looking for funny, inappropriate lines, Riverdale still does a lot of stuff right, but... I still watch it. I'm going to watch season four. There's something wrong with me, but I'm going to. (laughs) Well, I think maybe that's... I don't know. Is it now that it's just fallen into the realm of guilty pleasure? I don't even believe in guilty pleasures, like, conceptually. But I think I've invested so much time in these characters. Mm. And even though I know I will only ever be disappointed, (laughs) I'm still hanging in. I don't know why. They've got you on the line. They got me on the line. Ah. Well, with that in mind, shall we try to crack the YA bingo code? Bingo! Not a good bingo. Yes, let's. 
Okay, what do you have? Okay, I think there's a lot here. <laughs> I agree. I didn't realize until I was looking at it in the face that we could hit a line here, Brenna. So I've got musicality. You betcha. Not just because we've done how many musical episodes? Oh my gosh, the Heather's one is pretty good. Um, I've got stunt casting. Mm-hmm. Vancouver. Oh, for sure, for sure. So much Vancouver. Mediocre white boys. Yeah. Oh, Archie. Acerbic wit. Yeah, okay. For Cheryl and basically exclusively yeah, for Cheryl. more or less. And maybe Kevin. And maybe Kevin. I like Kevin. Actually, do you know what? I have a little fact. Okay. So Kevin is played by an actor. Here, I got him. <laughs> Kevin is played by Casey Cott. Yes, Casey Cott. Okay, so his older brother, Corey Cott, is a Broadway actor. And when I was in New York last, I saw him play the lead role in Newsies. Oh, wow. Yeah. Okay. That's fun. Yeah. So sexual awakening, because yeah. the whole thing is that Archie got hot over the summer, and that's like this whole recurring theme on the first episode. I kind of like that it's a bit of a gag, but it's also sort of terrible. Well, it's like one of those things, right, where that you, at first they play it off as a gag, and then you realize that actually, no, it's going to be a central pivot point to several characters' arcs, and you're like, oh, yeah, Riverdale. Yeah. That's what I've got. Do you have others? Uh... I can't think of anything off the top of my head, but I feel like there must be allusions to classic lit in there. Oh, she makes all those references. She talks about, um, Veronica, sorry, talks about how walking through the halls of Riverdale High makes her feel like she's in the lost epilogue of Our Town. Right, and she, and she makes the keg like the Truman Capote. Capote. She feels less breakfast at Tiffany's and more... In cold blood. That's the one. Yeah. Yeah, so that, yeah. also, honestly, I mean, we've already opened it up with the conversation about Archie and his teacher, but abuse. Yeah unfortunately unfortunately yeah you can challenge me on this one but could we say the decision to make betty and veronica less rivals and more friends is an unlikely friendship actually yeah i would buy that and if we're talking about the comic and not the tv show we've got the beautiful unlikely friendship between jughead and betty that is so well done in this in the comic and the way that it's abandoned in the series mm -hmm. and then Absentee adults was maybe the only other one that I might have put in, even though we do have a lot of adults. They're frequently say, they're absent. Too present in <laughs> <laughs> but they're almost absent for... Well, they're bad parents. Yeah, maybe yeah. that's a better term, which is something that we used to have, I think, but not on we this did. card. Because <laughs> they, they're present, but they're just bad at parenting, like almost 201. Which is strange, because to me, that's the big, well, one of the big distinctions between this and Gossip Girl. Because this, to me, really does feel like it took a lot of the lessons from Gossip Girl and mislearned them. <laughs> but instead of giving the parents really juicy, separate plot lines, it feels like it just repeatedly hits the bad parenting button. Like, the parents don't really get to do much on their own. They just reinforce the fact that they are bad parents and that they have propagated their cycles of abuse onto their children. Yep, pretty much. Which is kind of the big takeaway from Riverdale, isn't it? I saw a Paste article that suggested that not only does it have a sense of sameness and nowhereness, like the town itself, mm -hmm. but also the idea that the longer you stay in town, the more corrupted you become. Yep, it's so true. Yeah. I will say, if you're looking for a nice vacation destination, Fort Langley, British Columbia, where they film all the exterior small town village scenes, it's quite lovely. Oh, yeah. Yeah, they've got a great bakery called Blacksmith Bakery where they make really nice croissants. 
Well, maybe what we should do is we should do some kind of road trip one day. Yeah. I'll come out and see you. And yeah. And we can drive and we'll just take lots of like Instagram pictures or something. Sounds good. Let's get our <laughs> fans to crowdfund it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. If you want Brenna and I to meet in person for the first time in many years, then uh, get on that. <laughs> Send us some, some Kofi money. $1 increments. <laughs> it's like flight across Canada, my friend. Oh, gosh. Probably cheaper for us to go somewhere. <laughs> anyway, uh, Canadian travel jokes. It's true. So much of our listening audience is not in Canada, and we make so many constant in-jokes. So I'm grateful for you all for hanging in. This is true. Hopefully we're educating you about the Great White North. <laughs> um, if you want to get in touch with us and tell us that actually Riverdale is a super perfect example of high quality storytelling mm-hmm. you can find us if you want to catch both of us at the same time on the twitters at hashtag hkhspod we're always trolling it joe where can they find you if they want to yell at you specifically for not watching the show <laughs> or just give me updates about the most ridiculous things that have happened <laughs> in the most recent episodes yes you can find me on twitter at b stole my remote and that's the letter b and you can find me at Brenna C. Gray. That's Gray with an A. And if you've got some Riverdale fan fiction to send our way, you can email us at hkhspod at gmail.com. As we made clear this episode, we really do love to hear from you. So please feel free to write in mm-hmm. about anything, actually. Really? Anything. Yep. Really anything. Next week, we're taking a little bit of a sachet into classic YA with Nancy Drew. Yeah. I mean, I basically figured that if we're going for CW levels of YA television, we might as well just stick in that same idea. So we're going to tie this into the fact that there's a new Nancy Drew TV show coming out. It's amazing to me that I was not a Nancy Drew kid. I think that people would assume I was a Nancy Drew kid. I'm not going to lie. When you said that you weren't, I was surprised. Right? You know, I threw my hat in with Anna Green Gables and the Babysitter's Club. There was not a lot of space to also fit in Nancy Drew. Fair. So this is actually, honest to God, my first ever Nancy Drew I've ever read. Okay, see, I read a lot of the Hardy Boys, and they are fairly close comparisons. Yeah, I think they even had crossover books, didn't they? Oh, they sure did. And I think they even had a couple of crossover television movies. Oh my gosh. Which we will not be talking about, so... We are going to be talking about, (laughs) so Brenna, you have read book two of Nancy Drew, The Hidden Staircase, correct? Correct. Okay, so I have read the first one, The Secret of the Old Clock, as well as The Hidden Staircase. Look at you. And then we're actually going to be doing a double dose. So when we're recording this, we will not be able to talk about the TV show because we're technically recording this a couple days in advance. But uh, we are going to be talking about two different Nancy Drew movies. So we're talking about the 2007 vehicle starring Emma Roberts, as well as the 2019 version, which is directed by Kat Shea and features... I didn't look up her name, but it's the young actress from It and Sharp Objects. Let me fill that in for you, Joe. No, just kidding. Just kidding. I was going to say, you're not going to be able to help me. What are you doing? You're a liar. Lie to me. So uh, check out some of those texts. Get ready to read along with us. And if you are a Nancy Drew fan, get ready for me to misunderstand what's happening. Yeah, it's, uh, we're going to have some interesting talks about teen sleuthery. I think we are. All right, folks. So until next time, I will see you on the page. And I will see you on the screen. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.